Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom. Thank you for joining us here at our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. From our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home for worship, for the study of the Torah, for the family blessings, and uh, we thank you for considering us to be uh, something that you watch every single week like a congregation. So thank you for joining us and for being a part of our lives. A couple of announcements that we have for the ministry this week. Um, we have registration for Camp Yeshua is still open. We have a few spots left, so if, if there's any uh, youth that are uh, holding off on uh, registering for our youth camp, we encourage you to uh, get signed up, signed up. Go to CampYeshua.com. Look up all the info there. Um, there's also many youth that are in need of some financial assistance to help to cover the registration cost for that youth camp. You might consider that you don't have any youth or, or know of any, uh, but you yourself can participate in this event, if you make a donation to the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund here at the ministry, um, you can help some of the youth that need some financial aid to come to Camp Yeshua to have that one-of-a-kind life life experience uh, that you get from a summer youth camp. Uh, you can participate and help somebody to have that experience with the Lord. So if you would, perfectly consider making a donation to that, and that helps uh, many brethren, not just for Camp Yeshua, but also for all of our other events. Uh, whether it be Shavuot or the Feast of Tabernacles, that memorial fund helps uh, many people to attend those events and uh, have an experience with the Lord. Also, this month, the month of January, uh, is the time in which we are asking you to renew your subscriptions to the Yavo Monthly Magazine. That's a publication that we've done since the beginning of the ministry in 1995. Uh, we have faithfully and steadfast, been steadfast to put that publication out each month that ministers to the brethren with a variety of articles. And that publication is a free subscription. You can go to yavomagazine.com and you can sign up for that and receive that in your mailbox each and every month. You also can sign up and receive it digitally through your email inbox. Um, if you have been and enjoying the Yavo publication, we ask that you at least contact us and update your address. Make sure we have a good address for you so that when we uh, mail that out, that it's uh, arriving in your hands safely. Um, so please uh, consider signing up for that and stay in touch with all the things we do here at the ministry. It, like I said, it's been an outreach that we do uh, each month since the beginning and the inception of Line and Land Ministries, and it's ministered to many brethren over the years. So we encourage you to stay in touch with the ministry uh, using that publication and those means. 
So once again, thank you for joining us here on our on our Arab Shabbat broadcast. And so we hope uh, that you have a wonderful, blessed, and restful Shabbat this week. So now let us set apart the Sabbath from the rest of the week with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem in we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. <laughs> now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, and may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu etarunai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvarach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha Nedahar Bachudesh Nohora Techilot Osefele Osefele Who is like you? Among the gods, who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-shabbat, la'asot et ha-shabbat, l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othi le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadunai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavcha. 
Vashinan tam la venecha, vadebradabam beshiftacha, bayetacha, uvlechtacha, vidarech ufshakbika, ufkumika, ukeshatam la ota yadecha, vaheu la totavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisha recha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, uh, to chapter 13, hold your finger at verse 17, where our portion will begin for this week, and let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bachabanu Michol Haamim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Beshelach, which comes from verse 17 of chapter 13, where it says this. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the, led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of 
the land of Egypt. The last couple of weeks in our Torah cycle, we've been teaching about the judgments that came upon Egypt and that the uh, plagues that were put upon Egypt and the gods of Egypt to cause Pharaoh to let the people go. The whole goal in mind was God was introducing himself to the world, not only to the Egyptians, but also to the children of Israel, to all those that God made himself known to the world through these judgments and through these great wonders. And the children of Israel have now, they've left Egypt. They were let go. They walked out of Egypt and they now were on their way to go to the mountain where Moses had the experience on the burning bush. And God called to Moses and said, bring my the children of Israel, my people, out of the land of Egypt and bring them to this mountain, to this place. Now, yes, the goal was also to bring them and deliver them to the promised land, the land that had been promised to their father Abraham. And yes, that's a plan and a purpose. But what God is really doing is he's making himself known to his people. He's preparing his people to enter into covenant with him. And he's making himself known to them. Now, the title of our Torah portion, Beshalach, means when he sent out or when he let go. And it comes from that phrase in verse 7 where it says, now Pharaoh had let the people go. Now, let's be honest here. Now, does the children of Israel leaving Egypt, is that because Pharaoh let them go? Or was that because God had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? If the whole goal was to get the children of Israel out of Egypt, there would have been a lot easier ways to do it. That God could have just told them to go and then God would turn and he would fight for them and he would guard them against the Egyptians and make it so they just couldn't pursue the children of Israel as they just walked out of the land of Egypt. Again, God has a plan and a purpose to make himself appear and be known to the world and that he is showing us his character and who he is and he's showing us what his power is now the children of israel and i've said before uh when i've had the opportunity to teach through the torah cycle and we we teach many stories and each week we're talking about the children of israel and what they did uh in the wilderness and and various things like that i've always said that the children of israel were very appropriately named the children of israel because they lacked the spiritual maturity to know truly what was going on. That God is, is ministering to them. He does these great and mighty wonders. But then they mumble, they grumble, they complain. And they test the Lord in the wilderness. And these stories and these lessons that pretty much begin here in this Torah portion and continue through the rest of the Torah cycle is the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness and the mistakes that they made when they have rejected what God has done for them. And for us, those of us in the modern day can read these stories and learn what not to do when God is trying to do something for you or do something with you. The children of Israel tested the Lord here in the wilderness. And he, under, he knew this and he understood this. It says when they, when they went out, they tested the Lord in the wilderness ten times according to Numbers chapter 14. Six, the first six of those ten tests that the children of Israel tested the Lord in the wilderness appear in our Torah portion in our story for this week. This is the immediately, they, they started to go through these problems and test the Lord immediately upon leaving Egypt. Immediately upon de- being delivered miraculously out of the hands of the Egyptians, they began to test the Lord. And it's when they went out. 
And that is the theme of our Torah portion here, where it says, when the children of Israel, when they went out, these are things you're going to experience. These are issues you're going to run into. And this is, these are lessons we can take with us in our personal spiritual walks, in our belief for the Lord, is that when we go out into the world, when we are, have been saved by grace through faith, which is exactly what the children of Israel were, they were saved by grace out of the hands of the Egyptians, that then when you go out into the world, and when you're sent out, what are you going to run into? And what are you going to, going to experience? The children of Israel, they ran into a couple of issues right off the bat. Issues of needs, things that you might need like water, like food, like protection. They immediately had these needs. And how did they react to those things? They reacted in a way where they complained. They complained to a man, they complained to a person, rather than taking up their issue with the Lord or or praying to the Lord, asking for the Lord to deliver them from this as as well. No, they just complained, they mumbled, they grumbled, they, they reacted in a way that is not what someone's reaction should be. If you are a believer in God, if you have been delivered and you've been saved at some point in your time, in your life, in your spiritual walk, That when you then come to that first hurdle that you run into, because life doesn't immediately get easy once you become a believer and start walking in the ways of the Lord. The Lord will continue to test his people and he will show you what's in your heart. And if you arrive at a time and a place and you hit a wall and you hit a hurdle somewhere in your life, a spiritual or metaphorical hurdle in your life, how are you going to react to it? Are you going to move forward? Are you going to attempt to complete it? Or are you going to sit and just complain about it without attempting to overcome it? Are you going to turn to the Lord, the one who is guiding your steps, guiding your path, and ask Him for assistance with whatever issue you might run into? That will show you who you are. That will show you what kind of believer you are. And the children of Israel, time after time, failed this test, unfortunately. We can read these stories and we can learn from these mistakes so that we can be better believers before God. We can walk uprightly before him, knowing that the Lord is testing us because we have the cheat sheet later on in our Torah in our Torah cycle. We'll have verses that describe that say the Lord allowed the children of Israel to go hungry. He allowed them to thirst so that he might reveal and know what was in their heart. The children of Israel, maybe they didn't know that's what was going on at the time. Later on, through the words of Moses, he said exactly that. That's what God was doing. But we, who are then reading this, know this is what God was doing. He was teaching them. He was testing them. He wants the people that walk uprightly before him, that walk by faith in him, to make the right call, the right decision from one circumstance to the next. The children of Israel here in the ancient times, they needed a little bit of help. They needed to, to understand what was going on. And, but we can study their testimony. We can see what they did and the things that they said. And then we can apply those things to our lives. So as a primer for what we're going to cover in our Torah portion here, let us now go into it. This is a massive Torah portion with lots of, lots of content, lots of teachings. You could spend probably 30 minutes to an hour on some of these individual sections of the Torah portion. I will try to cover all of these parts and try to bring out some of the highlights as best that I can in the story of what uh, the children of Israel experienced upon leaving Egypt. 
Now, when they left, when they left Egypt, there's a couple of things that immediately are described for us here in the first part of our Torah portion here, which is the end of the chapter of chapter 13 of Exodus, where it says, yes, they went by way of the wilderness, not the way of the Philistines, even though that was near, even though that would have been the place that if they were going straight to the promised land, they could have gone that way. But no, they didn't. They're not taking the easy way out. The spiritual principle is, of course, that you don't suddenly get a get out of jail free card and you don't get to go the easy way when you've been saved by grace through faith from God, that no, he's going to take you through the wilderness. He's going to take you through some trials and tribulations to see what's in your heart. Verse 19, it describes that Moses and the children of Israel, they took the bones of Joseph with them out of Egypt. That's because Joseph had had made the children of Israel make an oath to him at the very end of the book of Genesis that said when he dies that he's he wants his bones to be brought up out of Egypt and taken back to be buried with his forefathers. And he said this specifically, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones out from here with you. Now, this obviously could have been a part of the looting of Egypt because Joseph was a great man throughout the history of Egypt. It's believed he was placed in a coffin, that he was probably um, embalmed and that he was buried and, and put in a place where obviously with great honors because of what he did for the Egyptians. In the process of looting Egypt, they probably went and they took Joseph's bones out. It probably was in some form of a sarcophagus, probably had a great deal of riches associated with it as well, and this is what they did so that they might carry him back so that he might uh, be uh, put to rest in the promised land. There's all kinds of things that you can think about here where you have the bones of the Messiah, the Messiah-like figure that Joseph was, that his presence was there with them throughout all of the journeys in the wilderness. That this is part of, and it's also whenever you collect the bones or the body of someone and when somebody has passed away you always want to give great honor and reverence to them you do it causes us especially believers to come to mind the idea of resurrection the idea that we will see the one our loved one who has passed on we will see them again when, when you're talking about the bones or the remains of somebody, I mean, you want to immediately go to Ezekiel 37, where you have the prophecy of dry bones, prophesy to these bones, and then suddenly they become alive again. And so that that's something that is always going on in the back of our minds, that we are believers of the resurrection. Why else would you take or want to preserve or want to do well by the remains of somebody, if not to believe in the power of the resurrection? And so that's something else uh, that we can connect to the bones of Joseph being brought out of Egypt. Verse 20, it now talks about the first couple of camping places upon the children of Israel, this mixed multitude, this mass of people that we believe was over 600,000 men who were able to go to war. We believe the total number of people could have been around, estimated to be about 2 million of these people walking out of Egypt. And there they go. They go to the first camping place. They go walk as far as they can to a place called Sukkot which means temporary dwellings. And this is the first place they camped. They had to camp for the night, and they had to rest and make set up their temporary dwellings, and they're on their way out of Egypt. The very next place they camped is a place called Ephom, which the meaning of that name means with them. And it was at this location that we have the very first appearance of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night in the midst of the camp. That by the meaning of that name, that God proved he was with them in the camp of the children of Israel. 
he appeared miraculously as a cloud, as a pillar of cloud that it was there. Every morning you wake up, there's a pillar of cloud. When it got up and it moved, the children of Israel packed up and they followed. And then even in the evening, it provided light for the entire camp of Israel that a pillar of fire in the midst of them. And it's like, imagine in ancient times, there was not, when the sun went down, there was no light. There was maybe some campfires. You could have some, some lanterns, some, some candles, something that provided light. But nothing like the children of Israel had where they had a pillar of fire that illuminated the entire camp. Even in the midst of darkness, the children of Israel had light within their camp. And this was the presence of God. The rabbis have called this pillar the messenger of God, the guardian of Israel, that this was the physical presentation, the, the, the physical form of the messenger of God and his presence in the camp. I'm also reminded of Genesis 15 where it talked about the what walked between the pieces when God made covenant with Abraham. That it was a burning torch that walked between the pieces and the smoke and fire or the smoke of a burning furnace walked through the pieces as well. Almost two separate entities that are all kind of wrapped up into one and, and we're trying to understand obviously the relationship and the plurality of God. That how can he be two but yet be one and our human brains have trouble figuring that out and understanding that. But the the way God presents it here is he presents himself in kind of almost two separate forms, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it's almost like a, you could see it as a leader who leads them by day and a symbol of, of protection at night. And so God is manifesting himself in many different ways to the children of Israel. You get to see that every day, every morning, every night, the children of Israel, there should have been no question in their minds that God was with them in his presence in there in the camp. Now at chapter 14, this is where God speaks to Moses and he says this. He says, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal Zephon and you shall camp before it by the sea for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel that they are bewildered in the land and the wilderness has closed them in then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord and they did so. Man, I thought we were done with the Egyptians. I thought when we walked out, the plagues, you know, death of the firstborn, that we would be done with the Egyptians. But this is not so. Apparently, God is still knows there's still some hard hearts in Egypt, perhaps still some hard hearts in the camp of Israel as well, that we're needing to manifest another miracle, something other, another thing that manifests the power of God, that Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened again, and that he's going to give himself and show himself honor over Pharaoh, all over all of his armor his army, and the Egyptians will know I am the Lord. If they didn't know it already, they're going to be taught it now. And so what they do is they go wandering in the wilderness. They go down a path and they start, they end up at a place where they are trapped, they're land trapped by the sea, and that they're going to get caught up and it's where they can't go to the left or to the right and they can't go anywhere and it looks like they're lost in the wilderness. And we believe that there were probably scouts for the Egyptians that went out and saw, and it's all like, hey, where's that giant mass of people that just left our land? Where are they going? Oh, they're wandering this way. They just camped here and here and here. And then we just saw them turn down this one valley. You know, we're familiar with the land and the terrain. And we just saw them.
them turn down this one this one path, this one canyon. And they're like, what are they doing? They're wandering in the wilderness. They're going to be trapped by the sea. We know that that doesn't lead anywhere. And then it's like now that almost emboldens the Egyptians to then say, you know what? If we went and go chase them down, they wouldn't be able to flee. We, we can go chase them down. The, the, the land has trapped them in. The water's trapped them in. And we can, go, we can go and get them right now if we wanted to. And that's what they did. Only though it was the Lord that told them to go there in the first place. So the Lord has a plan and a purpose. It's almost like setting a trap for somebody, making you think you're going one direction, and then suddenly you appear somewhere else. And that's exactly, you know, these are military tactics uh, that people would use where you look and appear like you're doing something or you don't know what you're doing, only you do. And so this is exactly what happened. The, the Pharaoh says, let's, let's go get them. It says, why have we done this? Why have we let them go from serving us? You know, it was so much better when they were here and they're building our cities for them. Let's go get them. So he takes 600 choice chariots of Egypt and he puts captains over them and Pharaoh and he hardens his heart and sends them after him. 600. Um, obviously, there's always meanings, deeper meanings in the numbers. The number 660, 600, 6,000 always represents man, always represents sometimes the, the flaws of man from time to time, that that's what that number can mean. And so here what we have is we, we have man, we have the, the personification of, of evil, basically, in the life of Pharaoh, that this is now what is coming after the children of Israel. This is the this is the antichrist-like figure. This is why the number six is present, and this is why, and this is what the attack looks like and appears whenever the people who are the enemies of God when they come and attack. You might see the number six somewhere uh, in that story. So they go and they chase them down. Now. I don't want to spend too long talking about where we think this is. There's been many people and many uh, amateur archaeologists and professional archaeologists trying to figure out where exactly this was. And the truth is we don't have 100% proof of, of where the crossing of the Red Sea was. Um, we, some people have thought for years that it was at the Straits of Turin, which is at the base of the Sinai Peninsula. Many people have now pretty much warmed up to the idea that there's a place in Egypt uh, north along the Sinai Peninsula called New Nueva, Nueva Beach, where they, the people have found an underwater land bridge that the water, basically the depth of the water from that beach across the Red Sea is only, um, you know, it's like, I believe it was somewhere between 10 and 30 feet deep. And there's an underwater land bridge and it completely drops off on either side of this underwater land bridge as far as depth is concerned. And that a lot of people believe this is the location of the crossing of the Red Sea. Like I said, there's not 100% proof. And I don't know if finding that location truly is important to our faith. It is for some, but if you can literally and physically prove that these things could have happened here in Scripture, that does build up many people in their faith. But that Nueva Beach location is very fascinating because it is very much isolated and shut in from the mountains. Once you get to that beach, which you have to get to through a canyon, through the mountains, you then at that beach cannot go further north or further south. You get completely kind of blocked in by the rocks and the mountains and that's what makes that location very fascinating here so the uh, army of pharaoh they come and they draw near to the children of israel and now let me read here at verse 10 of chapter 14 and let's see how the children of israel reacted to this so when pharaoh drew near the children of israel lifted their eyes and behold the egyptians march after them so they were very afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have you dealt with us? 
to bring us out of Egypt, is it not the word that we, that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die here in the wilderness. This is going back to the story in which the, ch- the children of Israel rejected Moses when he first went into Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh said no, and then he made their work even worse in their servitude of the Egyptians. And so they had rejected him then, and we told, and they basically are saying this, we told you, leave us alone back then, for it would have been better to serve the Egyptians, that you brought us up out of Egypt and then brought us here into the wilderness. The immediate reaction of the children of Israel is not one of understanding that God is the one who led them here, that God is the one that spoke to, spoke to Moses and said, here, go down this path. I'm sure there were dissenters amongst the children of Israel who said, um, actually, we know that path. That's going to lead us and be shut up in the wilderness. Why wouldn't we stay here? But God said so. Okay, so we'll go. There was an understanding that God led them to that place. Why are they not looking to God? Instead, they grumble against Moses. They grumble against him. These are also the people, and this is the idea and the mindset, you know, going back, these are the people that probably said in the camp of Israel, they probably said this, man, I'm really glad Pharaoh let us go in Egypt. Rather than saying, man, the God of our forefathers are way more powerful than anyone in Egypt. Praise to him for delivering us out of Egypt. No, they, they, the whole mindset here, going back to the start of our tour portion, they had this thought that it's like, you know, who really let them go? How did they really get out of Egypt? They probably thought, well, well Pharaoh let us go. Mm-mm. No, it was the power of God that, let, that caused the children of Israel to be able to leave. They have, they have not understood this, and they have not changed their heart to understand what God is doing for them. Moses' response, one of, the, one of the more powerful words I love reading, verse 13 of chapter 14, Moses says this, Do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Verse 14, The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. What powerful words here coming from Moses where he says, stand still and see the salvation. See the Yeshua of our Lord. This is one of the instances where, you know, you can see the pattern of the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, in our scripture here where this is exactly, let us, let's be clear here. Who provides salvation? Where is the salvation come from? He comes from the Lord. And he's the one who's going to do this for you today, and you will see miraculous things. And that phrase also in my New King James where it says, you shall hold your peace. The Hebrew word there is harash, which more literally means be silent. And it's like, and, and so you get, it's not an offense to basically read this verse, and it says, the Lord will fight for you, and you shall shut your mouth is not an offense to what those words, and it's almost a nice way to say, hold your peace. That's a nice way of saying what he really was saying. And that's actually a good phrase and a good word that's for some people that continue to complain or freak out or they live in fear in, all of the, in, in, in some situation that they find themselves in life. Sometimes you have to just almost shake them and say, look, the Lord is the one who will enact vengeance upon these people. He's the one who will fight for you. And it might be good for you to stop talking because you might say something that you might regret. You might say something. You are the one who is flawed to try and speak on this matter. Let the Lord take care of it. 
And that's what the children of Israel were needing to hear. And that is what Moses said to the children of Israel. Be quiet and see what the Lord is doing. Now, what's really funny here is the very next verse, the Lord is speaking to Moses. And the Lord's first words to Moses says, why do you, why do you cry to me? It's almost like Moses said this to the children of Israel. Stand still, see the salvation of God. The Lord will fight for you and be quiet. And then he might have actually looked up to the Lord and be like, Lord, what what you doing here? What are you going to do? What, 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 is, what, is, what are we going to do here? We're trapped by the sea, the mountains there. What, what are you going to do? And the Lord says, don't, don't cry to me. God says to Moses this. He says, tell the children of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rod. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. And they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over the Egyptians and over his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then it says this in verse 19. The angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness and it gave light by night so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So here we have this. First of all, very curious phrase here where it says the angel of God who was before Israel, went behind them. And then it says, the pillar of cloud that was before them stood and went behind them. So what went behind them? Just one thing, or did two things go behind him? Two in our scripture. The angel of God, the messenger of God, the very presence of God in the camp went behind them. So did the cloud. So did the pillar that was there. And so when you have this pillar, sometimes God will teach you something and will say, look, this is the way it is. I'm going to put my pillar in your camp and you're going to follow that pillar of cloud. You're going to follow it. But then later on, as you go and you parents experience this with their children, there will come a time in an instance in which you will then try to teach them something that not just literally do that every single time, but, you know, I'm trying to teach you something here. It's the same thing when you teach your child about a hot stove. You, when you're a child, you say, don't touch. It's hot. Don't touch it. Whether it's cold, whether it's hot, whether you don't know, so don't touch it. As you train up a child, you then teach them, you know what? Sometimes the stove is hot. Sometimes the stove is cold. It's okay to touch it when it's cold. You use it. You cook with it. And that's what you end up teaching your kids as they get older. So what you literally told them before sometimes has some exceptions to it. This is an instance in when God is doing exactly that. He put this pillar in as the leader for them to follow in the camp. But now what he's going to do is he's going to go behind the camp and he's going to protect them. And he's going to be the rear guard. However, I'm going to go here, says the Lord, but you are to go forward. So we're teaching that this is a teachable moment for the children of Israel on how God will lead. That he's not just going to lead us and we're just going to be learn to be nothing but followers. But no, God is teaching them that, you know, sometimes you have to hear my instruction, do what I have told you. But I'm doing something else that you're not supposed to worry about. You're not supposed to worry about the Egyptians. You don't have to fight the Egyptians. God will fight the Egyptians. But what you have to do is you have to do your part. You have to go forward as I've commanded you. I've given this through Moses, told him, follow him. You're going to go through the sea on dry ground, but I'm going to go to the rear guard and I'm going to fight for you. 
If you take notes in your scripture, I would encourage you to uh, jot down Isaiah chapter 52 at verse 11, which connects, which those verses very much are tied to the first part of our Torah portion here. Let me read this for you here, Isaiah chapter 52. It says this, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her and be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the Lord of Israel, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. That is exactly what God is doing here and, and portraying here at the children of Israel. He is our rear guard. That phrase also comes from Isaiah chapter 58, that when we keep an appropriate fast before the Lord, it describes in Isaiah 58, that God will protect us. God will be our rear guard. And that is what he is doing here. And that verse in Isaiah, it says he's leading us, but he's also protecting us. And when we need protection from behind, we're looking over our shoulder. When those of us that when you live in fear, that's what you're doing. You're always looking over your shoulder. And that's was what the children of Israel were dealing with. They were living, they were occupied with the spirit of fear that the Egyptians were going to come and get them. But God is proving his power. He fights for them. So he goes back and he is the rear guard. It says this, continuing on. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of the fire of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off the chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord Adonai fights for them against the Egyptians. This is exactly where we see God fighting a war. Now, he's not uh, he's not very susceptible to losing any battle anytime soon. But it shows that God was physically altering the conflict with the Egyptians. Yes, they did. They were hearts were hardened and they go to pursue the children of Israel into the sea. But God was fighting them. He caused trouble upon the army of the Egyptians. Uh, what that took place, how that took form, we don't know. That they were probably fearful, so much so that they understood that, that there was they were going up against a God here. That they're trying to go and get a couple of you know children of Israel that are leaving their land. But then there's a God who's actually fighting them. And it says this is one of the inter- interesting miracles of this story that he took off, or sometimes literally it says he turned aside the wheels of the chariots so that they drove them with difficulty. Whenever we see this story take place, whether it be in the movies or anywhere else, we think that the children, the chariots, once they got into the Red Sea and were then going into what this dry ground that used to be wet, that, you know, the wheels got bogged down. They hit some rocks and then the wheels came off or, or they broke and they weren't able to catch up to the children of Israel. But our scripture says that was actually a miracle that God did. Not that there's some physically like, oh, they hit a couple of rocks and pebbles and they got bogged down in the, in the mud trying to cross the sea and that's why the chariots couldn't catch up. No, it says God actually fought for them. God did this. God made this happen. 
And so that's showing the power of God. It's funny also when you think about it, it's like he, he took the wheels off the, the chariots. I kind of picture that God is showing the Egyptians, hey, you know what? You're kind of in the wrong camp. You're kind of in the wrong place, kind of like if you ever park a car and maybe in a neighborhood that's not so good, you might wake up and show up and your car is on blocks and the wheels have been removed off your car. If you're in the wrong neighborhood, believe you me, the, the Egyptians were understanding they were in the wrong camp at this time that they show up and the wheels are coming off the chariots. That's a funny, funny thought. But what happened here is this. They did pursue them. They're going into the sea. Verse 26, the Lord says to Moses again, stretch out your hand over the sea. The waters will come back upon the Egyptians on the chariots and their horsemen. And he stretched out his hand, and that's exactly what happened. That the walls of water, they came, they closed in on the Egyptians. And then, verse 30, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believe the Lord and His servant Moses. This is what it took for them truly to finally step away from this idea or this thought of fearing the Egyptians. These, the, the taskmasters and, and what they are, what they can do and what they represent, that there was finally we have removed that fear. And it took God fighting for them and killing them and them seeing the bodies of the Egyptians floating from the Red Sea for them to finally know that Egypt is no more. And this goes back to anyone who might still have believed any other gods of, of Egypt that might still be present, even though God kind of wiped them all out when the, and proved he was the one true God in the plagues, that if anybody ever thought there was an Egyptian god that was a god of the sea or a god of the water and that we, you know, these, the Egyptians went into the water and would the god of the Red Sea deliver them? No, because they're dead as well. And so this should put all beyond all shadow of a doubt that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one true God. And now the children of Israel feared the Lord. That's what it took. This is one of those times, this is what it was needed for the children of Israel to finally know that he is the one true God. Chapter 15 of Exodus is the first song of Moses. It's a song that gloriously lifts up praise to the Lord for his triumph over the Egyptians and all the things that he's going to do and how great is our God, how powerful is our God. It's from this chapter at verse 11 that we get the Michmolka. We get the, the song that we sing each and every week. Who is like the Lord our God that there is, he does glorious wonders and holiness and there is none like him. And this story and or this song is very poetic and it is like sort of the, I like to call it the capstone of God truly exalting his and showing his honor over the Egyptians and what his power is. Also fascinating, if you were to have a Torah scroll, if we were to open this Torah scroll up and we were to go to Exodus chapter 15, the uh, scribes and sages of Israel have always, when they've uh, copied this passage of Scripture, it appears in the Torah scroll in a very interesting brick wall pattern. The phrases are, are broken up into individual lines with large spaces, and they'll have one line with, with two sections of text, and then the next line will have three three sections of text, and the next one back to two, and it looks like a brick wall 
pattern. Very easy to find. If you were quickly scrolling through a Torah scroll, you could find Exodus 15 very quickly because it, the text looks completely different. And the scribes of Israel have done this, not only with this, the first song of Moses, but also the second song of Moses that appears at the end of Deuteronomy, and has done this in a way so that it stands out. It's almost like a section of poetry that has you know, different uh, formatting in the Torah scroll so that we might see it and find it. Now, many people have speculated, what's, is there a purpose to that? What's the meaning of that? And there's fascinating theories. One, the one that I like the most about this song and the way it's laid out in the Torah scroll is this, is that when you see it scrolled open, it appears like two walls. A brick wall. When you think of a wall, you're going to think of something that has a brick texture that's kind of layered, and it looks like a wall And in the Scripture because it will encompass at least two columns of uh, text. It looks like two walls. This is a reminder and a remembrance of the two walls of water that the children of Israel walked between the sea. That this was a sign showing the power of God. The song continues on through uh, most of the chapter and it even talks about and even prophesies into the future of what the children of Israel will, will experience. In uh, verse 14, in the midst of the song, it says this, The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold in the inhabitants of Philistia, and the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, and the mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O, o Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Let me continue on, finish it out. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary of the Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. This is speaking prophetically into the future. Not only are we glorifying God at the beginning part of the song, talking about the horse and rider who's thrown into the sea and what the miracles God has just done, but we're speaking into the future of the sanctuary that God will establish. Even when he goes to his holy mountain, and we're speaking about now prophecy about Jerusalem and where God will dwell amongst his people and that how the children of Israel will conquer all of these lands and these people and these inhabitants will know and will be in fear also of the children of Israel for what God has done. So an amazing song and poem that has prophetic implications. Unfortunately, we know that the children of Israel continued to make mistakes throughout their lifetime and throughout the, and their descendants as well, that they did not always do exactly what the Lord commanded them to do. And again, these are more stories for us to follow and learn from their mistakes. But this is again the song of Moses that praises him for the amazing miracles that he has done and performed in the Egypt, for the Egyptians, to the Egyptians. Um, for, uh, chapter 15 continues on and there's a story here now this is the very first story of the children of Israel truly in the wilderness and truly completely free of fear of the Egyptians it starts at verse 22 of chapter 15 and this is the story of the waters of Marah let me read here so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters... 
the waters were made sweet. There he made a, a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in the sight, in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, and I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, which, uh, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, trees. So they camped there by the waters. Here we have this small story here. And in this story, I love this story here because it's a microcosm of exactly what the children of Israel are doing in the wilderness and what God is doing and what he's showing them and teaching them. First, they come up to a place and they find themselves in need, in need of water. They arrive in the wilderness, they cross the Red Sea, they go three days, no water. How long can somebody survive without water? A couple of days. So we're getting to the point now where it's like, you know, uh, in all honesty, this would be a time in which, you know, you might actually question the Lord. Like, Lord, what you doing here? Like, we do need water. We can't go that long without water. We do need water. So they come here to this place. They find these waters. And I love the way the scripture reads to where that in the, in the Hebrew and in every translation, there's, a, there's some ambiguity here of exactly what was bitter. Because it says, they came to the waters, and they could not drink the waters, for they were bitter. Now, which was bitter? The waters or the people who came? That's something that I like to, and there's a way to teach this in a way that the waters and what the wilderness did for the children of Israel is that it reflected who they were. And that's what wilderness experiences can do. And people have said this many times that people who have gone through either survival situations or go into the wilderness or a boot camp. When you go into that situation, it will show you who you are, what kind of person you are. That's what a wilderness experience will do. And that's what God is. And that's why overall, that's why the children of Israel went through the wilderness. So he might know what was in their heart, what kind of people they are. And the waters of Marah did exactly that. The waters of bitterness reflected what was in their heart. They themselves were bitter. So how do we rectify this? How do we, uh, how do we uh, make it so that we can drink the water, so that we can be given this life? Well, God shows Moses a tree. Literally in the scripture, it means he taught him of a tree. And that's what was cast into the waters and is what was made sweet. And then he establishes this covenant and states this language that sounds like it's more out of Deuteronomy than out of the book of Exodus, where it says he'll make a statute and an ordinance for them. He tested them for them to diligently heed their voice to do what is right in the sight of the Lord and to give ear to the commandments and keep those statutes. This is a micro Torah teaching right here at the end of Exodus chapter 15. That God will test you so that he might know who you are and so that when you follow him, you shall heed his word, his commandments, follow his statutes and his ordinances, and you shall live by them. Because that's what made it. They, they immediately were healed from what they had. They immediately could then drink the waters of life that they needed, having no water for three days, and that they were then able to live because they had walked in the statutes and the ordinances of God that he was establishing here. What amazing, beautiful little micro Torah teaching just in those verses that I can teach the almost the every concept and every the primary understanding of what the Torah is for just from this story alone. 
And this being one of the times that the children of Israel tested the Lord, when they tested him ten times in the wilderness. The first was at the Red Sea when they believed in fear that the Egyptians were coming after them. This is the second time here when, in our Torah portion and in the story of the Exodus when they tested the Lord as well at the waters of Marah. Immediately after that, they came to Elim. They came to a place with 12 wells of water, 70 palms. They camped there, and what an amazing blessing they had there. They had, could had all the water that they need. They needed, and they had palms, and they had were able to kind of refresh themselves before journeying further into the wilderness. Now, chapter 16 of our Torah portion. This has the amazing story of when they now grumbled again, they tested the Lord again. In fact, they tested Him multiple times here in this chapter on in various levels and in different ways. See, they, we got water now, but the problem is, is we now no longer have any food. So they journeyed from Elim. Let me go ahead and read here, starting at chapter 16. It says this, And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. When this is the same phrase for Sinai, so they're now they're approaching Mount Sinai on their journey to the mountain where Moses came to the Lord, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed, so this is about a month after they left Egypt, then the whole congregation, the children of Israel, complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the, the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they were hungry. So first we were thirsty. Now we're hungry. Is the Lord going to deliver us again? Is the Lord going to prove to us He is going to meet our needs? He sent us out of, out of Egypt. He's done all these mighty things. Is He going to deliver us in this way as well? Well, for those of us that believe, of course He is. Of course He is. He's shown His power to be able to do miraculous things. Of course He's going to, to be able to do these things. But how are you reacting to the problem? Children of Israel, once again, testing the Lord and not, and again, the, te the, the tests and the issues that show up in the wilderness are reflecting again what is in their heart. The Lord speaks to Moses and says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. See, God's continuing to show exactly what he's doing here, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that when they shall prepare what they bring in, that it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So let me start paraphrasing here. Moses and Aaron, they tell them to all the children of Israel. And what he also does is he sends meat before them as well. He sends quail that come before them in the camp and they gather that. And so they're allowed to eat meat. But then they're also given this bread from heaven that's going to be rained down as well. Now, this is not the only time that meat is going to be delivered into their hands. That's, this is going to come later as well. But later it will become a devastating time in which they tempt the Lord and they actually die in the process of eating uh, the quail later on in our story. Here, the Lord is providing them. That They're complaining about that they had meat and they had bread to eat in Egypt. And that's exactly what God is bringing to them here in this place. All at the same time, we know the children of Israel had all their flocks at their feet that they brought out of Egypt as well. Yet they're complaining about what to eat and complaining about meat. And so they're complaining about anything that can come up, pretty much. What happens here is God shows them, and he again is He's providing them this miraculous bread from heaven. But he's also with it comes a test. 
So this is what happens is that they wake up early in the morning. And what happens is after the dew clears in the morning on the surface of the wilderness, they see something that is on the ground. And this is where we hear the story of this manna. And it's described here in our scripture uh, all the way down at verse 31. It was like coriander seed which is very small, round uh, little balls. I guess it, was, it had to have been enough that you could actually pick it up off the ground to collect it. But then it was also very small that um, when the sun came out, it actually melted on the ground. So there was a time of the day you could go out and gather it, but it wasn't just always on the ground and sitting around and that it all, it, it's, it's this miraculous bread that it appeared in the morning, but by the time the sun came out, it had melted away and it was as if it wasn't there at all. So they had to go and gather it at a certain time each day. If they didn't go and gather it, then they didn't get it. They didn't receive it. And so it had to have been solid enough that they could gather it. But what they ended up doing is they brought it in. And then the stories go is that they ground it up and made cakes and then fried it and used it like flour. But we also believe that it was edible as it was. And that they said, it says again in verse 31, it says that it was like wafers made with honey. Now, I can only imagine how good this probably tasted. My father always described it that it probably was like Indian fry bread, which is like a sweet bread that was like fried and oil and probably tasted extremely delicious. And so um, I would love to, if anybody has a recipe, what they think manna tastes like, I would love to try it, by the way. But this is what he provided for them, and he gave them bread from heaven. But with it came a test. Because what they had to do is this. They had to go out and they had to gather, and they counted it by omers. And an omer, what we believe is basically it was a, it's an ancient measurement that basically would be the equivalent of what a person could eat in one day. That's what an omer basically was worth. So they were to go out, gather it in omers, gather it for each person according to the number of persons that were in their tent. So they'd go and they'd gather it each day. What are you going to eat for the day? And what they were to do is they were to eat all of it. So that there was no more remaining next till the next morning. So for they were to go out the next morning and gather it again. But they tested the Lord again. Because somebody went out. What they did is they're like, okay, I gathered it for the day. But do I really trust the Lord that it's going to be there tomorrow? I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to hold some back just in case. I'm going to save it, store it away just in case that it doesn't come the next morning. Well, they did that. And then when they woke up and it was then infested with worms and it stank and then it was inedible because that's what God, this is the miraculous bread from heaven. This bread can do pretty much whatever the Lord wants it to do. And so it's going to become inedible after one day. And no, you're going to eat all of it and you're going to go and gather it again the next day. The children of Israel were tested on a daily basis with the bread from heaven, a daily basis. They had to eat all of it and trust it was going to be there the next morning, every day. Now... Every sixth day of the week, the Lord, once again, I told you before, where sometimes the Lord will teach you one thing, but then the Lord will show you, and as you grow and mature, He will educate you in times in which there's actually exceptions to what appears on the surface as just a blanket rule. Because then on the sixth day, they were told, gather twice as much. Because it's not going to show up on the seventh day. And you're going to gather twice as much, and then you're going to eat half of that, and then you're going to take what you gathered on Friday, and that's going to be what you eat then on Saturday. Wait a minute. Okay. So we have a bread that on any other day, when you keep it over to the next day, it spoils. But on the sixth day into the seventh day, we keep it over and it doesn't spoil. 
Lord, are you sure? Are you sure? I can imagine that first time they held it over and they're like, you know, we tried this before. It stank and it wasn't it wasn't edible the next day. So here we go. Let's do it again. Hey, lo and behold, it is fresh. It is edible. And the Lord is doing what he said he would do. But again, the children of Israel tested them also on that day. On the Sabbath day, they tested him with this manna as well. Again, we're counting up the ten tests in the wilderness, and we're going through six here in our Torah portion. And so, again, the children of Israel are being taught and learned and educated that when you go out into the wilderness, even though I am your God, I have done miraculous things, I am capable of doing miraculous things, I don't want you to just become this follow this group of slaves that just follow what their master tells you. See, because that's not what religion is. That's not what God is doing with the children of Israel. Though some people might say that's what God's doing with the children of Israel. He's going to take them to uh, uh, Mount Sinai. He's going to give them these laws, going to give them these commandments. And they're going to, it's going to become a burden to them to have to follow all those words and those commandments. Wait a minute. God took a kingdom, uh, a nation of slaves... And then he's taking them through the wilderness and teaching them all these things, only to then lay a bunch of bondage rules and, and, and stipulations upon them so that they might be enslaved by that. That's not the way God works, and that's not what he's doing. That common sense logic makes no sense for anyone that might claim that the commandments and the covenant that God is doing with the children of Israel is somehow some sort of bondage and that it's so hard and it's oppressive to someone. That is not what the children of Israel are doing. God is proving time and time again. He's trying to teach them to be mature spiritual believers. To trust the Lord in the things that he says. To trust him and to follow him. And not just to become a new type of slave to the words of God. But he's also providing them. He's teaching them like a father teaches his children. Or a mother teaches their children. He's teaching them in that way. When you talk, when you give a child food for the first time, and man, they don't know how to eat it, and sometimes they have, yeah, spoon feed that child, and then once you, they grow old enough and mature enough to be able to hold the spoon themselves, they gotta figure out that their eyeballs are not their mouths, and they spread the food all over their face, and they can't figure out how to do that, and they spill the bowl, and turn, it's like, no, you're gonna do this, and as you grow, they learn more and more how to do it. That's what they're doing right here with water, with bread, with these lessons of what God can do, that He's providing all of your needs, your water, your food, protection. These are the basic necessities of life that God is starting with as He's trying to take this people and make them alive again. This is a people who was thought dead. They were slaves in Egypt with no hope of, of, of restoration. And he's now bringing them and restoring them back to life. And what are the things you have to start with? You have to start like a young child and you have to meet their needs. That is what we are doing here at the very beginning of our story of the exodus of the children of Israel going into the wilderness. We are meeting their needs on a, on a regular basis, showing that they can trust the Lord. Continues on again after they have the manna. It says here at the end of chapter 16 that they this is the manna they ate for 40 years. So any time in the future we're talking about in the wilderness, any other day that, that somebody woke up and somebody rebelled against Moses or complained against Moses in the story of the, the uh, golden calf or Korah's rebellion or any other story in the future, remember this. 
That morning they woke up and they gathered manna that appeared there miraculously, bread from heaven, and they ate it all every single day of every story that ever takes place for the rest of Exodus. These are the people that grumbled against Moses and did not believe in the Lord and the power of what he was doing. We also get water from a rock here in our story as well. We have uh, chapter 17, closes out the rest of our portion for this week, the Shalach. And this is where we have the story of water from the rock. When Moses, when they grumble again against Moses, they come from the wilderness of Sin. They come to a place called Rephidim, which is before Mount Horeb, which is very near uh, Mount Sinai. And they come here to this place, and again, they contend with, Mo- with Moses. They have no more water. Whatever they gathered before, they don't have water anymore. And so this is the time in which God says to Moses, go and you strike this rock. And water will come forth abundantly amongst the children of Israel. This is also a place where, if you ever have uh, studied anything, the um, journeys of Jim and Penny Caldwell, who have gone into Saudi Arabia and looked for evidence of the Exodus, they have found a rock in this in the wilderness, very near where they believe the real Mount Sinai was, and that this is this rock shows huge signs of water erosion. It stands up in the midst of the wilderness and has a split right down the middle of it with water erosion all around it, and that they believe they have found literally the location where Moses struck the rock, and that this water was provided uh, water for all of the children of Israel and all of the camp of Israel. What's fascinating here is that as it continues on, they they contend with Moses, they complain. This was called the waters of Meribah because they contended with the children of Israel. They tempted the Lord. And apparently one of the things they said, as it says here in verse 7 of chapter 17, it says, is the Lord among us or not, is one of the things that the children of Israel complained. Where once again we have... We have a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, bread in the, that appears miraculously in the wilderness that they still are not understanding is God really with them or among them. What comes immediately following that is war. The children of Amalek, the sons of Amalek, they come and they fight with Israel at Rephidim, this place where the water just immediately came abundant. Now, I could actually understand 100% exactly why Amalek left or attacked them, I mean. They're in the wilderness. And suddenly this big giant company of people that came out of Egypt, they come to the place and then suddenly they have food and they have water. That's exactly why somebody's going to go to war back in ancient times in the midst of a wilderness. If somebody has water, they stole water, they think they have something, they need it, they want it. And so that's one of the reasons why they came to war. So that's the physical reason why Amalek attacked. But I can also understand spiritually, though, God is still trying to teach them some kind of lesson. Remember the first phrase the first verse of our Torah portion where we said that they didn't go by way of the Philistines. Why? Because they would see war and turn and flee to Egypt. Now at the end of our Torah portion, we have exactly that war. God now believes through some of these things that he's doing that they are now prepared to see war. That now, it's not that they're going to see war and want to flee back to Egypt, but that children of Israel are growing. They're learning. And so now God brings war upon them. And again, he does something miraculous in the way that this war is fought. And this is one of my uh, one of the most amazing stories that I love to visually picture in my mind. Because Joshua and the children of Israel, some of they, they, they went to war against Amalek. And what Moses does is this. He says they're going to go to war. Moses goes up on top of this mountain. And what Moses does is this, is he lifts up his hands... And when Moses is on this mountain lifting up his hands, the children of Israel are prevailing against Amalek. They're winning. 
But then when Moses gets tired and if he lowers his hands, Amalek immediately starts to prevail against Israel. There's something miraculous going on here. This is not just skill on skill of the various warriors that are going on. This is the very power of God and that God is showing through Moses leadership and what it needs as a leader that sometimes you have to be steadfast and strong and patient as a leader so that the people who are under you might be able to prevail in the things that they do. So this is almost even as much may perhaps a lesson for Moses as well. So Moses stands up on this mountain and he lay, raises his hands. And now there's two other guys, Aaron, his brother, another man by the name of Hur, goes up on the mountain with him. As Moses' arms got heavy, they then supported and held his hands. And they put a stone and a rock behind him that he leaned against as he did this. And this went on apparently all night or all day and so that, that he had to raise his hands all the way to the going down of the sun so it was all day that this fight was going on and he had to keep his hands up for the entire day as time went on you know his arms got tired you know her and and Aaron they got tired of holding his arms as well and so his arms he's trying to and he's leaning and resting his arms were falling and what I believe in the way that I picture this is that his arms would fall and they probably ended up somewhere to his side like this with Ur and, Her and Aaron holding them just trying to keep them up as long as they possibly could with his arms falling like this so when the children of Israel were fighting the battle they were fighting they would look up on the mountain and what do they see they see three figures on a mountain with the one in the middle doing this i don't know about you but that is the most amazing spiritual word picture of the the, the physical representation of what yeshua's sacrifice does for us is that moses on a mountain this Mo moses being the messiah-like figure in our story He's on a mountain. He has his arms out, standing on the mountain, and that is the sign and the symbol and what is needed for the power of Israel to prevail over his enemies is a man on a mountain with his arms spread out like a cross. Is what is necessary for Israel to defeat its enemies. I cannot think of a more uh, a metaphorical, prophetic way of saying what the sacrifice of Yeshua does for us. That by his sacrifice, by his crucifixion, we have the power to prevail over our enemies. The number one enemy is the death, is our enemy. As living beings, death is our greatest enemy. And God shows us that in, through this symbol and this visualization that we have the power over our enemies. Anyone that would ever be a proponent to say that these stories and what the children of Israel went through in the wilderness, how it somehow doesn't apply to our Christian faith, or that it somehow doesn't, it doesn't fit, or that, oh, that, those things are old, but now we have the new. And some teachers that would stand up and say, quote unquote, that we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Those people do not understand the power of God. They do not understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that the same God that made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and delivered the children of Israel through Moses in the wilderness and taught them and gave them words and commandments and instructions, that that is the same God that brings us salvation by sending His Son in the New Testament. How we somehow think that we can disconnect those things and that God is doing something in the New Testament that he has not already planned and purposed and even foreshadowed in the stories that came before it. 
We serve a powerful God who can declare the end from the beginning. Why would we ever say that the beginning then suddenly isn't necessary to understand the end? That would be, that's, that's a complete, that's absurd that we would think that or even consider that, especially when we have a story and a visual picture that completely connects our Christian faith to what God is doing through Moses and here with the children of Israel. That is why we read these stories. That's why here in the Messianic movement, those that have, have the, the Hebrew Roots movement, who have that many of us come out of the Christian church, but we're going back to the original stories to find those prophecies, those foreshadowings of the Messiah, of what God is doing and what He's capable of. And by doing that, that builds our confidence and our faith in Yeshua of Nazareth. You can do no more, you, you can't do anything that is more Christian than studying the Word of God and what He has done from the very beginning and then finding out how it connects to exactly what Yeshua did and what His testimony means that we've invited Him as our Lord and Savior into our lives. There's not a more Christian thing than you could do than to go back to these stories of old and see the power of God and what He did with the children of Israel so that we know what He's also doing with us who I would submit are also very immature believers in our faith. As we walk and we go about our daily lives, we too make the same mistakes that the children of Israel made. The Lord's still testing us even today. So perhaps we should read these stories, the cliff notes of what God can do and what the mistakes others have made who are also believers in God, and so that we might not make those same mistakes. The Lord will meet our needs. The Lord will take care of us. He will provide for us. He will feed us when we're hungry, hungry, clothe us when we're naked, protect us when we're in need of protection, and give us a drink when we are thirsty. He will meet our needs, and he, but He will test us in these things. We need to see what's inside our hearts. As the trials and the tribulations and the metaphorical wilderness that we live and find ourselves in in our day-to-day lives, that wilderness and those tests will reflect truly what is in our heart. So if you're bitter in your life with the things that you see and the things you have to deal with, then those trials and those issues are simply reflecting what's already in your heart, which is bitterness. But if you can find joy and peace, and if you can give your praises and adoration to the God and creator of heaven and earth, even as you witness things that are hard and sad and tragic and life being difficult, if you still can give all praise and adoration and find joy and peace in your life there, then that wilderness is now reflecting truly what's in your heart. And that's what should should be our testimony. That we are a people with joy, with peace, and with kindness, and reflect the fruits of the Spirit. And we have patience in all things, and we're long-suffering. And that we are the truly the people that God has called, and that we can follow His commandments and walk uprightly before Him. Let that be our testimony before God and before men. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction, as always, Father. Father, we thank you for the lessons that you have taught the children of Israel, Lord, in the same way that a father teaches their child, Lord. Father, you have shown them that you will meet their needs, but you test them, Lord. For they must follow and obey what you have said, just as we must as well, Father. We can read these words. We know what you have said, 
how we are to be obedient before you to your commandments, your words, your instructions, your teachings. And Father, I pray that we would learn those lessons so that we may be mature in our faith, so that we might truly understand your words, so that then we ourselves can teach another generation after us, and that our light might shine before men and before all nations, Lord. And that we might be a testimony to them as well of your power and your glory and the testimony of what God has done and saved us. So, Father, continue to use us mightily, Lord, so that men might see our example, Lord, as truly as we walk, as we are followers and believers in Yeshua of Nazareth. We have that testimony, but we also keep the commandments and the statutes that you have given to us through Moses at Mount Sinai. Let that be our testimony, Father. So we love you, we bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day for all the things you do in our lives. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray all of these things. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing. God has put a smile 
Shalom.